Today in our series, Transformations, we're going to be looking at the topic of the transformation of the church. And normally when you hear the word transformations and the word church together, we start thinking about questions like, how can I change through the church? Or how does the church need to change? Or how can the church change the world? Those are all important questions we need to ask and be answered. But today we're going to look at this from a little bit different angle, which is how has the world changed the church as the church has adopted the ideas of the, and the expectations of the world? How has the church changed? And what does the church need to commit to and recommit to going forward for her to be a transformative community of God from amidst the world in a post-Christian context? Now, there's a sense that the church is unchanging. The church is timeless. When we think about her uh, universal commitment to the core doctrines of the faith or the core message of Jesus Christ or the mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ, there's a sense that the church is unchanging and timeless in that respect. But in the latter part of the 20th century and the first part of the 21st century, we have seen uh, far too often the church capitulate to the ideas and expectations of the world to negative impact. And so during the great reset of the coronavirus, this is a perfect time for us to, to just briefly take a look. We can't be exhaustive, um, exhaustive uh, in our uh, breath and look at this topic, but we're just going to take a brief look at the ways that the church has capitulated to the ideas and expectations of the world and what the church needs to do about it. What is at stake in the topic today? Why this matters is because we need to be discerning. We need to understand what are some of the factors that have led to the weakening of the church here in the 21st century Western context? And what does uh, the way forward look like for the church to prevail? Our theme verse for our series Transformations has come from Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And if I could just summarize and contextualize what the Apostle Paul was saying there, in light of our topic today, I think Paul would say something like this, church, do not conform to the world's ideas and expectations for you as a church. That will lead to you becoming a powerless and false church. But instead, submit your lives unto God, church, and let God transform your mind and your lives so that you can discover and live out his good and acceptable and perfect will from amidst the world. And so today what we want to do is we want to look at a passage from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30. And we're going to look at four areas of exhortation that the Apostle Paul gives to the Philippian church that I think are especially relevant for us here in the 21st century post-Christian context. And as you're turning to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30, a little background. Uh, this happens to be um, a church that Paul and his ministry companions, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, planted on Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, they had received a call to come to the uh, Macedonian and later Acacia region um, in Acts 16. That's modern-day Greece. And uh, the first church that they planted when they came to Greece was at the Roman colony of Philippi. And Philippi was uh, a, a city where there probably wasn't a huge Jewish presence. Uh, you needed 10 Jewish men to establish a synagogue. There apparently was not one. And so uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke came to Philippi and they saw a group of women reading the Bible and praying by a stream, it says in Acts 16. And uh, it was led by a woman named Lydia, who was probably named after a region called Lydian in Asia Minor. She was an affluent woman. She was a dealer in purple uh, clothing and she was kind of the leader of the group. Well, Paul, 
and the others led them to Christ. They baptized them, and they used Lydia's house as a headquarters for their ministry while in Philippi. Uh, they led people to Christ. They built up the church. They even cast out demons from one particular woman, um, and the merchants lost money uh, from that encounter. And so they blamed Paul. They threw Silas and Paul into a uh, Philippian prison, and they had beaten them before. Luke and Timothy apparently were not, uh, probably because they were Gentile, not Jewish. And so uh, through a miraculous turn of events, God released them from the prison, led the Philippian jailer to faith, and uh, Paul and Silas ended up leaving Philippi. But Luke and Timothy probably stayed there to build up the church. And so when Paul writes to the Philippian church, this is now about 10 years later from their ministry in Acts chapter 16. And Paul cared about this church. He was proud of them. Um, He invested in them. And in chapter 1, he says that they had partnered with him in the past and presently in the gospel. He said that uh, he prayed for them with joy, that he yearned for them with the affection of Christ. And so let's read together now Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30. Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Paul gives four exhortations in this passage that we want to focus on today. He says that they are to have the faith of the gospel. They are to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. They are to strive side by side together as the church, and they are to persevere during suffering and persecution. And I think these four areas are key to us as a church today uh, going forward. And so let's take a brief look at each one of these. Number one, Paul says that they are to have the faith of the gospel. In verse 27, he says you are to hold on to the faith of the gospel. What gospel is this that Paul is talking about? If you go forward to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, Paul defines this gospel. He says there that Jesus was equal with God, but he did not count that equality as something to hold on to, but rather he humbled himself took the form of a man and served humanity to represent who God was to us. And he obeyed God, his father, to the point of death, to the point of death on a cross. And so uh, God therefore exalted him. He raised him to new life in his resurrection and exalted the name of Jesus Christ that at his name, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. And this will all be done to the glory of God the Father. And this was the gospel that Paul preached. It was the gospel that he lived. He said in chapter 1, verse 21, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the gospel that Paul believed in and the gospel that he lived. Question, um, is this the same faith of the gospel that we have today as the church? Uh, Are we proclaiming the Lord's life, death, and resurrection that that is necessary for salvation? Are we um, proclaiming the lordship of Christ, the judgment of Christ? Are we proclaiming that we need to live for the glory of God? This is the gospel that Paul preached and he lived. 
Whenever uh, someone comes and up to me and says, Pastor Chris, what should I look for in a church that I want to be a part of? I usually give them the same piece of advice. It's about five different pieces of advice to look for. Um, but one of the pieces of advice that I give is to say, um, look and see if they have the faith of the gospel. Go onto the church website, see what they say that they believe, listen to some sermons, and see if this is the same gospel Um, that is talked about in scripture. And if it is, that's a really good sign that that could be a good church for you. Throughout church history, whenever the church has um, uh, struggled with the faith of the gospel or capitulated to the world, it has led to a powerless and and, uh, false church. In fact, in the early church, we see many examples of how the world is trying to get the church to incorporate her ideas, and her expectations of who the church should be. The church at Galatia, it says in the Bible, um, they fought against the world's ideas to bring a works uh, gospel into the church. And the church at Galatia struggled against that. The church at Colossae and Ephesus struggled against the world's ideas to bring a, a kind of early form of Gnosticism into the church, this idea that Jesus was not uh, fully human, that he was just kind of this divine uh, kind of spirit that wasn't really real. And that was attacked the Colossian church. It attacked the church at Ephesus, and that was a completely worldly uh, doctrine of the demonic realm. The church at Pergamum in the book of Revelation, this is a church that was in the Ephesus region. They fought against the world's attempts to bring the false teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans into their church, and they struggled with that. Is today's church struggling with the world's expectations of the church, the world's ideas for the church? And unfortunately, too many churches have been weakened and falsified today by incorporating the world's ideas. It's almost like you can go into uh, some churches and it seems like you're in outer space or in some kind of foreign planet. And the gospel, unfortunately, in some churches has morphed into something completely different where people look for the approval of man more than the approval of God in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, some brief examples of how we see the world shaping the church. There is uh, the health, wealth, and prosperity church today. And this is a movement that has come upon the church that basically says, God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be prosperous. He doesn't want you um, to not have the best possible life now. And the strength of your faith and the words that you speak in faith determine your reality. They create the life that God wants for you. And this is a very dangerous movement that has come upon the church, a worldly movement. Um, Paul's life, Jesus's life, very much testify against the health, wealth, and prosperity church. And it's a real danger that's weakened and falsified the church. A second movement that's come upon the church in our time has been what's called the seeker movement of church. And that basically says that um, the, the gathering of the church on Sundays is not primarily for worship of God. It is largely for the evangelism of unbelievers. And uh, the offense of the gospel oftentimes is taken away from this uh, movement of church and replaced with self-help, practical messages that kind of have scripture tacked on to them. There's an obsession with how big a church is in this movement, uh, the integration of business uh, marketing techniques and 
to grow the church in this movement. And it tends to produce Christians that see themselves as consumers of goods and services of the church rather than disciples of Jesus Christ that are prepared to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. And so that can be a very dangerous movement that's come upon some churches. A third type of movement that has come across some churches that is weak and falsify the church is the progressive church. And the progressive church is basically uh, two movements within that church. It is a movement of Eastern mysticism upon the church, and it is a movement of social justice as the end goal of the gospel in the church. It is, it is a movement of Eastern mysticism in the sense of uh, mindfulness, which is basically a westernized version of Buddhism, and meditation, which is a westernized version of Hinduism, coming into the church to say, experience God by meditating before him in ways that are foreign to scripture. And it's, it's almost to say that the ways of the Lord that are revealed to us are not enough. There's some kind of mystical experience out there that we need to learn from the East. And it also positions social justice issues essentially as uh, the purpose of the gospel. You're saved so that you can go out and see um, different races reconciled. You're saved, so the thinking goes, that um, you can harmonize different faiths together with the Christian faith. You're saved so that um, people who have uh, sexual preferences and lifestyles that are unbiblical can be accepted and embraced in the church without calling for change. Um, you are saved to not just help the poor, but to be an advocate for poor. And that is really for the poor. And that is really the purpose of the gospel. Instead of the faith of the gospel being that we are saved from our sins, forgiven of them by the work of Christ as we submit to him as Lord, and we our citizenship is transferred into heaven, as Paul said in Philippians 3, we are citizens of heaven rather than being damned in the places of hell. And that is the true gospel. Um, and City Bible Church, we want to be very discerning about the ideas of what the church is that come across um, our church. On an individual level, you have the opportunity to declare the faith of the gospel in Christian baptism this Easter. On April 4th, after the Easter service, we're going to have a, a baptism service. Uh, there are several people that are going to be baptized to declare publicly their faith in Jesus Christ. And we want to encourage you, if you've never been baptized, to come talk to us and, uh, and, and have that opportunity to declare the faith in the gospel. I know that God will bless you and strengthen your faith as you walk with him in obedience. A second area that Paul encourages the Philippian church in and that we need to pay attention to is he says in verse 27 that they are to have a conduct and a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That the second area we need to focus on, remember, to commit to, is that not just believing in the faith of the gospel, but having conduct that is consistent with the gospel. And when he says having a faith that is um, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, what he's really talking about is having integrity and holiness. He's talking about having the integrity to live out what we say we believe and the holiness that comes from Christ to live out um, our faith and our changed nature. He defines this further in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, verse 15 and following, where he says that we are to be blameless and innocent before God. We are to be children of God amidst a crooked and twisted generation in which we shine like stars in the sky. This is what it means to live a life of integrity, of holiness. And I think that there's 
an idea in the church that we've imported from the world really to weaken the church. And that idea goes like this. Authenticity in where you're at is more important than integrity of a changed life. Authenticity in terms of sharing, well, this is just where I'm at. I'm not perfect. I'm a flawed human being. I'm a failed human being. And as long as I'm honest, the thinking goes, uh, that's really the main thing that you can ask of me. And what Paul is saying is the opposite. He's saying, you need to commit, Christian, to living a life of integrity, of holiness. You need to commit to having conduct worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and not just being honest about the ways that you have fallen short. And sometimes I think in the church, too many of us think that if I'm just honest about where I failed, that's all the Lord requires of me. As opposed to saying, that is part of my journey, being honest, and that matters But really, my journey should be one of having conduct in a manner worthy and honorable of the gospel. And I need to strive towards that with all of the energy and might that God has given to me. You know, the churches in the future that I think will shine brightest in the sky, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, are those churches that are not necessarily the biggest or the most popular or the coolest or have the most money or have the most gifted uh, people in uh, in her community. I think the churches that will shine brightest in the post-Christian context are those churches that um, have integrity, those churches that have uh, see people's lives really changing in holiness because the world will look at that and say, our lives aren't changing, yours are, why? And the world does not just need to see another example of just people being honest about their failings. They need to see an example of people's lives who've been transformed by the gospel. And the church needs to, to be reminded that it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ to the glory of God through the truth of the word and the community of the church that people's lives are changed. And so we need to remember to have conduct worthy of the gospel, that the testimony of a changed life is one of the most powerful testimonies you can have to an unbelieving world and to a believing church. Number three, Paul said that we should strive side by side together as the church. In verse 27, he says, we are to stand firm in one spirit and one mind, moving, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Later on in Philippians, he said in chapter two, verse one and two, that we are to... um, if we have any encouragement in Christ, if we have any comfort by his love, if we have any participation in the spirit, if we have any affection and sympathy that we are to make Paul's joy complete, he's exhorting the Philippians, by having the same mind and same love. This is a call to strive side by side as a community of faith. Uh, Again, when people come to me and say, what should I look for in a church? One of the things I say to them is look for a church where you can love the people where you can feel like they can love you, where you can serve the people at that church, where you feel that they can serve you, where you can be in community with them, relational community, and not just attend on Sundays and then leave. Uh, I posted on on my Facebook page um, yesterday that the church, uh, being a Christian, is about being relationally connected to a church. It is not just about listening to Christian videos, reading theology blogs, or posting on Christian social media sites. It is about being relationally connected to the church. And one of my old high school friends just made a comment, says, I beg to differ. And so I replied to that and I said, you know, um, what I'm really trying to say 
is it is not that um, joining a church is what saves you. That's not what we're saying. But we are saying that when you are saved, you are saved for a community of faith called the church. You are not saved by being part of a community of faith called the church. Jesus Christ did not come just to be the head with no visible body on earth. The church is the visible manifestation of the body of Christ. They are, they are the ones, we are the ones who give testimony to who Jesus is. And we demonstrate his love and his holiness and his wisdom and his goodness to an unbelieving world and to a believing church. So Jesus Christ did not come to have his body broken on the cross. He came to have his body broken so that the church could now become the body of Christ here through the Holy Spirit and those who believe. And so we need to strive side by side together as a church. And uh, I think that the world has really come in and um, the church has adopted kind of the spirit of the world sometimes. In, in, in an unbelieving world, there's an independent spirit today. And it goes like this. Um, I'm spiritual. I'm good. I'm just not religious. And there's this large growing group of people who describe their spirituality or lack thereof in that way by seeing themselves as spiritually independent and pursuers of good in an independent way outside the church. And they look at the church and the Christian faith and the Bible and they say, you know, we've moved beyond that. This is the post-Christian world where we seek our spirituality and goodness uh, in a way that's beyond that because we've been there and we've done that. And I think that even within the church, there is this independent spirit that is kind of um, sanctified in a way in the minds of some. And it goes like this. I'm Christian, but I'm just not into church. I like Jesus. I just don't like the church. I can kind of be this Lone Ranger Christian. I can do my faith on my own and be this independent uh, man or woman and kind of live out my faith. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I've heard enough of it um, growing up. And so I can kind of do my Christian faith on my own. And if that latter category is you as a Christian, I want to say this. Uh, you might be a Christian that is incredibly gifted. You might be a Christian who has a lot of ministry experience. You might be a Christian that has a lot of amazing theological knowledge and can articulate that. You might be a Christian that has been used God by God mightily in the past. But if you are a Christian and you are not in community with the body of Christ, if you're a Christian and you are not part in a relational way with a church, whether that's in person or through some kind of Zoom during coronavirus, if you are not part of a church community in a relational way as a Christian, then you are fundamentally an unhealthy Christian. You are, you are not a mature Christian. You are a Christian who is a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word, as the Apostle James says. And uh, James says that you can be a type of, uh, of, of kind of believer or half-believer and hear the word, but not do it and forget who you are or who you're supposed to be in Christ and uh, who also who you are without Christ. And so we won't want to be that Christian. Um, City Bible Church, we want to commit to being in the gathered church on Sunday mornings during our service in person or on Zoom. We want to commit to being in small groups together in community with one another. We want to remember the words of the apostle, uh, of the writer of Hebrews, who said in Hebrews chapter 10, let us spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not forsaking meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. And so we want to be obedient to that. We want to remember to reject the independent spirit of the world that sometimes gets half sanctified in the church, being a believer without the church, 
And we want to say the gathered church is a powerful testimony. She's the most transformative community in the entire world to build up the church and to be a witness to an unbelieving world. Do you believe that? Because the world wants to break up the church and to weaken her and falsify her by saying you can live your spirituality independent. And even to unbelievers that you don't need the church and the truth that she has. Number four, and finally today, the Paul exhorts the Philippians to suffer and be persecuted for the faith. To suffer and be persecuted for the faith. In verse 28, Paul says, do not be afraid of your opponents. Um, Verse 29, it has been granted to you not just to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Verse 30, that you are will engage in the same kind of conflict and suffering that Paul himself had. Paul says that suffering and persecution are part of being a true believer. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 10 of Philippians, he said he longed to know not just the resurrection power of Christ, but what? The fellowship of his suffering, becoming like him in his death so that he may attain the life of the resurrection. You know, when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he was writing from a Roman prison cell in his first Roman imprisonment in Acts chapter 28. So he's suffering, he's persecuted for his faith as he's writing this to the Philippians. And 10 years before he wrote to the Philippians, he wrote to the Galatian church in the epistle to the Galatians. And he said that he bared on his body the marks of Jesus. He had scars from being persecuted and suffering for Jesus. Five years before he wrote to the Philippians, he wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians, and he said he had been imprisoned, beaten, near death, shipwrecked, in danger from opponents, sleepless, hungry, thirsty, cold, and experiencing daily the anxiety that he had for the churches. Uh, Jesus, he said that blessed, happy are those who are persecuted, for great is your reward in heaven. It was the only beatitude that Jesus mentioned twice in Matthew chapter 5, that we are blessed when we are persecuted and we are known as children of God through that. He also said in the Gospels that if they had persecuted him, they will persecute you. One of the greatest testimonies that we will have as a church in the future is suffering and being persecuted for Christ. Now that is different than suffering with Christ. That is different than going through the normal suffering of life where we have an accident or a fatal diagnosis or we see loved ones die or we just kind of suffer through life and people depend upon God. And that's a great testimony as they depend upon God amidst suffering. But you know what? There's a lot of unbelievers in the world and they go through similar suffering and they suffer well. They're courageous. They're strong. Maybe it was just the way they were born or the way they were raised, but they're strong. And so there is a testimony that matters, of course, when we suffer with God and we give glory to God and depend upon God. But I think the greater testimony, especially in the future, in a post-Christian age, is those who suffer and are persecuted for God. And the core of who you are, the core of what is in you, is not primarily what makes you laugh or cry. The core of what is in you is what you are willing to suffer for what you are willing to be persecuted for. Um, Church, you're going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. You're going to be persecuted for uh, God's definition, holding fast to God's definition of the family, God's definition of marriage. You're going to be persecuted for standing up for the rights of the unborn. You're going to be persecuted for pointing out the sin that you see in the world. You're going to be persecuted for not going along with conforming to the ways of the world. And as Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 12, 
And uh, what will you do when you face persecution and suffering? You know, one of the things that Lorraine and I have done with Darcy Keene and Ethan from a very young age is teach them about the Christian martyrs in the faith because we don't want them to fall into the lie of the world that says the Christian faith, it's all easy. Um, there should be no suffering, no persecution. If it is, you're doing something wrong. Uh, we want them to understand that godly men and women, many of them have suffered and been persecuted, even given their lives for Christ. And uh, why wouldn't we expect the same? You know, the founder of our faith, Jesus Christ, and the greatest apostle, Paul, and the other apostles all died for their faith in some way or another. And so, and, um, and our Savior died on the cross. And so why wouldn't we suffer and be persecuted for what we believe in? I want to read to you a quote from a pastor named Paul Washer. It just kind of came up on my YouTube feed. It's a fairly long quote. I wrote the, uh, it down. But he talks about persecution in America that is here and will be coming. It's a pretty sobering quote. He says this, quote, The church in America is going to suffer so horribly. We laugh now, but they will come after us. They will come after our children. They will close the net around us while we are playing soccer mom and soccer dad. While we are arguing about so many little things and mesmerized by so many little trinkets. And the net even now, he says, is closing around you and your children and your grandchildren. And it does not cause you to fear. You will be isolated from society as has already happened. Anyone who tries to run for office who actually believes the Bible will be considered a lunatic until finally you are silenced. We will be called things that we are not and be persecuted not for being followers of Christ, but for being radical fundamentalists who do not know the way of Christ, which of course is love and tolerance. That's profound right there. If you go down, you will go down as big, the biggest bigots and haters of mankind in history. They have already come after your children. And for most of you, they have got them. They got them through the public schools, through indoctrination, and then through the university, through indoctrination. And then you wonder why your children come out not serving the Lord. It is because you fed them right into the devil's mouth. So little by little, the net is closing, he says. And then it is not little by little, but at the same time, you know this. Persecution is always meant for evil, but God always means it for good. Is it not better to suffer in this life and to have an extra weight of glory in heaven? You must settle this in your mind. This is not the one thing. Uh, this is the one thing I want to say over and over to you. He says, um, and then he goes on to say that we have a wrong idea of what caused martyrdom and persecution. He says, you think that these men were persecuted for their sincere faith in Jesus Christ. That was a reason but it wasn't really the real reason, he says. He says the real reason was they were martyred and persecuted as enemies of the state, as child molesters, as bigots, as narrow-minded, stupid people who had fallen for a ruse and can contribute nothing of society. Your suffering will not be noble, so your mind must be filled with the word of God when all people persecute you and turn on you. You want revival and awakening, but know this. Great awakenings have, only, have come only preceding great national catastrophes of the persecution of the church. I believe God is bringing a great awakening, but I believe he is raising up young men who are strong and trust in the providence of God to be able to wade through the hell that is going to break through on us. And it will be on us before we recognize it, unless in God's providence he is not done. And this is not silly talk. Apart from a great awakening, these things are going to come upon you. Uh, these are sobering words from Paul Washer, but they remind us there is a cost to following Jesus Christ. Are you prepared for that cost? Do you believe that the Christian faith is easy? Do you believe that it will cost you nothing? 
Um, the things that cost you nothing are not worth of ultimate value. Uh, your faith in Jesus Christ, your eternal life, the truth, um, the worship of God, these are things that are worth your entire life and they will cost you as they cost Jesus and Paul and the apostles and all Christians throughout the history of the church. Many of them have been persecuted and suffered for their faith. And at some point or another, we will too as a church, especially in the post-Christian age. Church, we need to remember that if we want to be a church that is a transformative community and force for God in the world, we cannot be a church that is more transformed by the world than we are transformed by God. And for that, we need to hold fast to the faith of the gospel. We need to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And though we are not perfect, we need to strive in the words of Paul in Philippians 3 for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, leaving the things that are behind behind and pressing forward for that call. We need to uh, be in community with the church, striving side by side with our brothers and sisters of Christ on the left and right, and not be Lone Ranger Christians, not be giving in to the independent spirit of the world. And finally, we need to be prepared for the coming persecution and suffering of the church. Paul said in our passage today that um, when we suffer and are persecuted for the faith, Jesus summons us to that. Paul exemplified that as well. And that is a sign to the world when she persecutes us, when it persecutes us. It cannot defeat the church, and it is a sign of a judgment for its own destruction by God. And it is also a confirmation that our faith is real. And so let's be a church that is transformed more by God than the world. God will bless that. God will strengthen that. God will bless and strengthen you as a believer as you and I commit to these things. And we will see the greatest transformation uh, in our lives. And God will use us to transform not only uh, with it happen within the church, but in the world around us.